Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18 to verse 27. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The purpose of the Son of God coming into this world was to save his people from their sins, as Matthew one twenty one says. Everything that Jesus did in his ministry was to demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah. He would teach unlike any others taught. He taught as one who had authority, unlike the scribes, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount. He would heal people of all kinds of infirmities. There was nothing that Jesus could not heal in an amazing way, proving that he was the Messiah, because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and the like. We looked at some of Jesus' healings last week in his healing ministry. We noted how spectacular his healing ministry was, unlike those today in many regards who tell they have healing ministries. They are nothing like what the Lord Jesus was able to accomplish. The section that we're dealing with today is one of the, um, can be very hard to take, but absolutely necessary. It is so essential. Because it deals with what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it, as you think about it, what does it mean to be a Christian? We've already learned from chapter 7 that not everybody who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Lord Jesus. There will be many who were able to cast out demons, who have healed, participated in the healing of others, and yet they will be renounced of by the Lord Jesus. He will cast them into the outer darkness because he says, you're lawless. I never knew you. We said that that was probably one of the most frightening passages, if not the most frightening passage in all the Bible. Yes, being a Christian begins, it begins with a profession of the lips. I must confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord. I must be willing to 
uh, to say that, because Jesus says, if I'm not willing to confess uh, Jesus before men, neither will he confess me before his Father. So it begins with a genuine confession of Jesus Christ and who he is. I must believe, in order to be a Christian, that salvation is only in Jesus and no others. In other words, it can't be that any other religions can make it. To be a pluralist, meaning a pluralist is someone who says it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what religion one professes, as long as they are sincere, then that is good enough. And if they do good to others, that is good enough. Well, to be a pluralist is to deny the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus was point blank when he was straightforward when he told us in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other except by the Lord Jesus. There is no other way. Uh, it doesn't matter what our sincerity is. It doesn't matter what we perceive our good works to be doing. If I don't confess Jesus as Lord and begin there, I have no part with him. Salvation is only by true faith in Jesus, as Jesus said. There's no if, ands, or buts. It's as Jesus said. Now, I'm telling you, not as an Old Testament prophet. Preachers exercise similar things to being prophets, but there is a distinction in the Old Testament prophets who were able to accurately predict the future, although that wasn't the, uh, the main role of the prophet. The main role was to preach the word of God, which modern-day preachers are following in that, though they may not have the capacity to foretell the future uh, without error. Brethren, we are living in a time that is becoming increasingly precarious for us as Christians. We are living in an age that in many regards is unprecedented within the last 50, 75 years, if not longer. Expect to see persecution increase as our culture distances itself from the law of God. The further it distances itself from the law of God, expect those to persecute us. As people distance, them, distance themselves from the truth, those of us who love the truth are going to be those who will be viewed as weird, as bigots, as uh, all sorts of things that they will call us and are beginning to call us. We will be hated of all men. Now, this is nothing new. Nothing new throughout church history. In fact, Jesus said this is the way it was going to be. He says, if they have hated me, the master, do not be surprised if they hate you, the servant. Because, he says, they hated me first. And if they hate the master, they're going to hate the slave. 
And Jesus said, all those who love darkness hate me. They hate the light. And Paul said, the Apostle Paul made it very clear in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, they will be persecuted. Suffering and the Christian life go hand in hand. Jesus said it. The apostles affirmed it as being true. It's worked its way out to be that way throughout church history. Christians, those who sought to live according to the word of God, have met historically great opposition. And it will continue to do so. Do you find it disturbing that a genuine Christian, you will have difficult times ahead for you? Do you find that personally disturbing? You shouldn't. It really, I mean, we may not like it, but it, we should not be disturbed by that fact because Jesus said it was going to be that way. If you're recoiled by that thought as being so terrible that I, who only wants to love people and do good for them, should be hated by them, if, if we get all worked up about that and we don't want that, then we need to ask ourselves a very sobering question. Have I professed Christ in vain? Have I become a Christian on my own terms, but not on God's terms? It's an important question. We're not playing games here. God doesn't play games with us. You see, the message that I'm about to preach is not a... a is not what the modern church wants to hear. But I would be an unfaithful servant of the Lord as one of his heralds. I'd be an unfaithful preacher if I did not tell you the way it really is. The way it really is according to the Word of God. The way it's going to be. What are the consequences of sin? What are the consequences of not believing in Jesus? What are the consequences of not of having Jesus as Lord of our lives? So that what Jesus said nearly 2,000 years ago, recorded in Matthew's account, is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. His Word is eternal. His Word abides forever. Now, we have already seen that good trees can only produce good fruit. Bad trees produce only bad fruit. The Bible renounces the notion of what we call easy believism. Now, easy believism is that idea where one can profess to be a Christian, where a person can profess to have Jesus as their Savior, but not live under his lordship at all. Or that it's possible that a person can have Jesus as a Savior, and then later on have Jesus as Lord. Now, there are quite a few, I hate to say it, that believe that, unfortunately, that false view. Now, what's happening here in easy believism? Here's what's happening. People want to be Christians on their own terms. We want to set the terms for following Jesus. They want to dictate to Jesus the terms of discipleship. 
and they want to uh, tell Jesus how it should be, and Jesus will have nothing of it at all. We don't dictate to the Lord the terms of discipleship. You know, the person wants Christ, but they want him on their own terms. Well, Jesus will find out in each of us, brethren, in each of our lives, Jesus will find out if we are actually living under his lordship. He will reveal it to every one of us. Now, this will escape. The idea, as I said, that we can have Jesus as a Savior and not Lord is a very precarious spiritual situation, to say the least. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And so what we see here, well, let's go on. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that passage stands. Whoever calls upon Jesus will be saved. But notice here what the person confesses. We're told it says they confess Jesus as Lord. That's what they're confessing. Him as Lord. And from the heart, they believe that Jesus is Lord. And therefore with the mouth, they confess that Jesus is Lord. The scripture says to us, Uh, In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, it states that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, the assumption here, now you may think, no, wait a minute. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, how does that fit in with Matthew 7 when Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? Do we have a contradiction in the Bible? No. What is the assumption in 1 Corinthians 12, 3? The assumption is that that confession of Jesus as Lord is a genuine confession of Him as Lord. That's what Romans 10 is getting at. If I really believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord, and we're going to see how that heart, because with the heart, the mouth confesses. Remember, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And we will, the fruit of our lives are born out from the condition of our heart. And therefore, no one can have Jesus as true Lord of their life without the Holy Spirit working in their life. Now, so I ask you today a very important question. 
Do you really have Jesus as Lord of your life? Or have you simply professed him as Lord and our life is a contradiction to our profession? See, that's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 7 that we've already looked at. Why call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say, Jesus said. You can say whatever you want, but are you living under my Lordship? And the Lord will find out in every one of us where we really stand. He will test us. And remember... We've looked at the passage, we won't turn there, but remember 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says that we are to examine ourselves, we are to test ourselves uh, if we are in the faith. Do you not recognize this, that Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So brother, let's take the test. Let's take Jesus' test. Because our passage today in Matthew 8 is essentially the test that the Lord Jesus administers. Let's take a look at Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 8, verse 18 and following. Jesus has, has already uh, he's given the Sermon on the Mount. He's been engaged in his healings, these spectacular healings that we looked at last week. As a result, it says uh, huge crowds were following Jesus. And uh, we're told here that Jesus says... He wants to depart from the crowd. He wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So he tells his disciples, let's get into a boat. Uh, He's already got in mind, the scripture says, what he's going to do when he crosses the Sea of Galilee. That's the sermon for next week, when he meets uh, the, the men possessed by the demons. But here he says, we want to leave. We're going to get in the boat. We're going to go. Jesus has worked very hard. In his ministry. I mean that people have been pressing in on him. And before they depart. Two men. Come up to him. And the first one says. First of all verse 19 describes who this first person is. They are a scribe. A scribe came up and said to him. Teacher I will follow you wherever you go. That's what the scribe told him. Now, understand something about uh, scribes. Scribes were, um, were the teachers of the law. They were learned, scholarly men. Teachers of the law. Now, obviously, this scribe, he was not part of the inner circle. Now you've got to understand something as you read through the scriptures. You will realize that a disciple simply means a follower. That's what the word disciple means, a follower. And there are a lot of people who were called disciples that followed Jesus. So you had your larger group of people that were called disciples. And then you had the innermost circle, the twelve that were called disciples. But if we think only the twelve are disciples, we don't. We miss out what the scripture says. Anybody who was following Jesus was said to be a disciple. Now when this man uh, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, 
I will follow you wherever you go. Now, does Jesus say to this man, you want to be a part of my growing ministry? Because it is impressive. I mean, it's growing larger and larger by the day. And why not follow me? After all, I could use a few good men. Does Jesus say that to this scribe? Who legitimately asked him, wherever you go, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Now, what's interesting about this situation, if you, when you study the ministry of Jesus, you'll notice that the scribes, along with the Pharisees, generally speaking, were those who were most in opposition to Jesus and his ministry. As a group, generally they were hostile to Jesus. So it was an unusual thing for a scribe to come to Jesus and say, I want to be one of your disciples. I want to be part of the innermost circle, Jesus. That's what he was asking Jesus. He wanted to be numbered among the twelve. Now, in this regard, Jesus, now you've got to understand something about Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He knows the hearts of all men. He knows the genuine condition of a person's heart. We see instances of that where Jesus, we're told, that's how he impressed Nathaniel to come after him, because he told Nathaniel something that Nathaniel was thinking. And that's why Nathaniel, and he says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree, Nathaniel. How did you know that? Nobody, nobody saw me under the fig tree. Oh, I saw you under the fig tree. And Jesus further impressed him when he said, uh, <clears throat> talking about, he told Nathaniel, you are a good man in Israel. So Nathaniel was talking about, was thinking about what it was to be a true Israelite. And then that's when he says, my Lord. He was impressed. Jesus could read he could read thoughts of men. He knew the hearts. So before we get all worked up about this scribe that Jesus is going to speak sternly to, or the next person that Jesus that comes up to Jesus, just keep in mind Jesus knows the hearts of people and he knows what's going on. Now notice what Jesus responds to this question. Jesus I will go wherever you go. So Jesus responds, verse 20. Look what Jesus says to him. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to go wherever I go. Really? You're going to go wherever I go? Well, let me tell you something about myself. Let me tell you about the, the Son of Man. Wherever, you're going to go wherever I go. Well, here's what it's going to be like if you go wherever I go. Even the foxes have holes where they come back to. It's their residence. They come back to. The birds build nests, Jesus says, and they have a place to go back to. Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we know that Jesus laid his head technically someplace. Jesus did sleep. But when Jesus told him that he has nowhere to lay his head, in this context, it's obvious what he's saying. 
foxes have their homes, the birds have their homes. I don't have a home like that. Jesus was always on the go. He had a residence like this. And by the way, the, the term son of man was the term that Jesus used about himself. Actually, he used that term more than the term son of God. Did you know that? He called himself son of man more than he called himself the son of God. Now, Jesus was God in the flesh. But what does he mean by the, the, the son of man? Jesus was the God-man. He was true deity in true human flesh. He was truly God, truly man in one person. He is the Lord of glory, but he is a man of sorrows. Where was, where was Jesus born? He wasn't born in a palace. Here he is, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus, the Son of God, the Scripture says, was the creator. He was the agency of the creation, we are told in Colossians. So whatever there is, it came through the agency of the Son of God. So here you have the Son of God, creator of all. The greatest king that there ever will be. He's not born in a palace. He's not born with a silver spoon, as it says. He, he's not even born in an inn. Where is he born? In an animal stable. That's where he's born. Most humiliating of things, to be born in, a, in the lowest of, of things. Now, what Jesus is saying, when he says... The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, I am not like most people. And if you're going to follow me, it's going to be tough. You say you want to follow me wherever I go. Really? You're willing to do this, scribe. Now, in this regard, Jesus says, when he, when he says this about willing to go, we're going to see that the man doesn't follow Jesus, does he? He doesn't get in the boat. It's evident from the text that what Jesus said to him was too much for him. I thought you were going to go wherever you were going. But if this is what it's going to be like, I don't know if that's what I bargained for. You know, there's a lot of things about the scribes here. You remember, there were a lot of people that followed Jesus because he was the great miracle worker. He did all these great signs. In fact, Jesus says in John 6, he says an evil generation always seeks a sign. And he, he told the people, he says, you know why you're following me? Because I fed you bread is why you followed me. Because I healed you sick. That's why you're following me. Well, we're told... As Jesus' ministry unfolds, so when, he, when the scribe says, I'll follow you wherever you go, well, this is where it's like. You know, you look at the ministry of Jesus, here's the way it was like. The reality is that Judah reject, rejected Jesus, John 5. Galilee will cast him out, John 6, 66. Gadara, where he's going to when he crosses the, the Sea of Galilee. 
They will, when he casts out the demons, we're going to say, they will beg Jesus to leave the district. We don't want you here, Jesus. Get out of here. So Gadar doesn't want him. Samaria refuses to give him lodging, we're told, uh, in uh, Matthew 8.34 that we'll get to. They didn't want to give him lodging because his mind was set towards Jerusalem. And the Samaritans had a problem with Jerusalem because they were worshiping up on Mount Gerizim. And then, of course, the Jewish nation, represented by many uh, there in Jerusalem, they will call for his crucifixion. So as the scripture says in John 1.11, it says, Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. Meaning the Jewish nation rejected their Messiah. He was their Messiah. And they rejected him. You want to go wherever I want to go? Wherever I go, people refuse me. They reject me. This is what it's going to be like. Still want to go with me? Apparently the scribe was amazed by the crowds, the miracles, the enthusiasm that went along with it. He thought it was going to be a good thing to be closely associated with Jesus. But Jesus gives him a reality test, and the man failed the reality test. You see, what Jesus was saying to the scribe, have you counted the cost, Mr. Scribe? You want to follow me, it's not going to be a glorious thing. You think it's going to be spectacular. It's not going to be what you think. It will be hard. Your name will be dishonored. It will be very tough at times. And we're reminded when you think it's a uh, wonderful thing to be chosen by God from the womb to be one of the great apostles. I mean, that's a great privilege, isn't it? That's what Paul says about himself. As Saul of Tarsus, he says, I was chosen from my mother's womb to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So this hater of the church, God all along was going to seek him out, convert him to Christ. And you know what Jesus told Ananias about uh, Saul of Tarsus? He says, you tell him, he says, I will show you how much you shall suffer for my namesake. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts, and you'll see just what Paul had to endure. It was not easy. Every, there were people looked out to get them. The, the apostate Jews were constantly hounding the apostle from town to town to town. Raising trouble for him. Of course, Paul talks about, I've spent uh, days in the deeps. I've been uh, without food at times. He says, it, it is uh, what he mentions in 2 Corinthians 11, what he endures is, is amazing, what he endured. This is what it was going to be like to be the apostle of the Gentiles, a follower of Jesus. You want to go with me wherever I go? This is what it's going to be like, Mr. Scribe. You know, Jesus and his disciples were told, <clears throat> he says, there's, there's not going to be any worldly gain for following me. While Jesus was in the world, he was subjected to various aspects of poverty, we're told. Uh, he was not rich. He didn't have thousands of people, after the healing, sending him money in the mail. 
to support him. But he and his disciples lived off the charity of those who did he did minister to. And you know who are some of the greatest contributors to his ministry? Some godly women. Turn with me to Luke. Look at Luke 8, verses 1 and 2. And it came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who's called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. If you notice, uh, in their ministry, the money would be given to them by certain people. Jesus didn't ask for it. It just came to them. And they, they had their, their treasury. And, and remember, guess who was watching over the treasury? Judas Iscariot, who often pilfered from, we're told from the scriptures. But this was the way of life. Jesus, you want to follow me wherever I go, Mr. Scribe? Well, it's not going to be glory. There's no glory in this, and you're not going to make a lot of money in it. So, it appears that the scribe's intent was hasty in his desire to follow Jesus. And Jesus saw his heart and knew this. And that's why he said what he said to them. See, what this shows you is this. Look, if Jesus can look at the heart of these men and know exactly what needs to be said about them, he's going to look at your heart. He's going to look at your heart. He's going to look at your heart. He's going to look at my heart. He's going to look at your heart, your heart, your heart. He's going to look there, and he'll decide. He'll decide the test that's best for us to determine if we are living under his lordship. He will decide the terms that will test us. Now, in this regard, <clears throat> Jesus is telling him, you know, there's going, you have to count the cost to follow me. There will not be abundant riches. There's not going to be any great glory. Men are going to hate you. You will be called narrow-minded by all those who, when you say that Jesus is the only way, and you shut out from heaven all these other religions, they're going to say, how dare you to be like this? You're a hate monger. And uh, you'll be called a hate monger because you will deny gays their right to marriage. And if you dare say anything derogatory like, God will judge them for their sinful lifestyle, for that abominable lifestyle. You'll be fired from your job. You're going to have your church lose its tax-exempt status. It's already happening. And it's going to increase in a culture that is distancing itself from the law of God. Expect it to get worse. Are you willing to be my disciple? Are you willing to call me Lord? You want to live under my lordship? This is the way it's going to be. The scribe didn't want to follow him. And then in our text, verse 21, 
we're told there's another person who came to him. This is one of the harder ones to deal with here. Look at what it says. Another of the disciples. Now, this other man is already said to be a disciple. Remember, I told you that disciple was simply a follower. So this man was a disciple in the larger context. But he wanted to be part of the inner circle. Another of the disciples came to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, this seems to be... Seems to be not an unusual or reasonable request, doesn't it? In fact, we're going to see uh, that the law of God talked about how people should show respect for deceased parents. But what Jesus says to him, well, let me just tell you what Jesus said to him. But Jesus said, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That's what Jesus says to this man. I'll I'll follow you, Jesus, but first, first, let me go bury my father. No, let the dead bury the dead. Wow. Pretty harsh. Some people think that was just cruel. Is, Is the Lord of glory, can he sin? No. Is anything harsh? Not really. Not when you really understand. By the way, there's a lot of things that Jesus said. He will begin to just weed out people along the way. We're going to talk about this man here that Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. But first, turn with me to John 6. And let's look at verses 59 to verse 71. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Let me stop right there. What Jesus had been talking about is, he says, You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, that is a difficult thing. Now, understand, uh, you weren't supposed to drink any blood uh, in the Old Testament, in the dietary laws. There was not, you know, see any blood. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is a difficult statement, Jesus. So that's what he was teaching. Now, of course, what Jesus uh, is getting at, I'll explain that in a moment. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted of him of the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were no longer walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, 
You don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now what Jesus had been teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, if you look at all through John 6, he's talking about believing in him. It was symbolic of believing in him. But they didn't have the ears to, un- uh, to hear properly or the, uh, the understanding properly. Therefore, they chose not to believe in him. And by not believing him, they departed. They left him. So you had a whole lot of disciples of Jesus leave him and no longer walk with him. It was too difficult a statement. To endure. Now back to our text in Matthew 8. It was a big deal in, uh, to honor the deceased in Israel. It was a big deal. It was the final act of devotion of a child to their parent. And it was a, a, a special thing to attend the ceremony of a deceased parent. It was considered an act of kindness and a duty of a child to do so. Now, knowing that context, I've just told you it was one of the most special things that a child could ever do in paying their last duty to a parent was to be there at that ceremony of burying that parent. The man says to Jesus, Jesus, just let me first bury my father and I'll come. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, was this heartless for Jesus to tell this to this man to bury his father? And then, after the burial, he'll catch up with Jesus. Look, before you... um, before we have a tendency to jump to conclusion and think that this was kind of heartless, turn with me to a couple Old Testament passages to be understood along with this, that it was a duty, that it was an honorable thing to, to bury one's parent. But turn with me to Numbers chapter 6 and look at verses 6 through 8. It talks about the law of the Nazarite which Samson will be one who will take the law of the Nazareth. Verse 6, All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And here was a case. It didn't matter that the, prox- the closeness of that relationship. If you were under a Nazarite vow, you could not attend your parents' funeral. Take a look at Leviticus 21. Look at verses 11 and 12. 
Let's back up to verse 10. And the priest who is the highest among his brothers on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes nor shall he approach any dead person nor defile himself even for his, even for his father or his mother nor shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing of his God is on him. I am the Lord. So, it was not unusual then of those, certain of those in the Old Testament, depending on what they were like and the position they held, they couldn't go and pay their last respects to their parents. And so when this man who says he wants to follow Jesus, let me first go bury my father. He says, Oh, let the dead bury the dead. Now, let's understand that. That's an interesting term that Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Probably understanding something about that man's heart and about the spiritual nature of the deceased father. Let the dead bury the dead. The man wasn't as committed to the Lord as we might think on the surface. He won't go with Jesus. So I, don't th- I hope you don't think that Jesus was heartless. He was the most loving man the world has or ever will know. I hope you don't think Jesus was too demanding. Jesus, uh, listen, don't fail the test today. We're taking a discipleship test, remember? Don't fail the discipleship test. Jesus never, never, never demands too much of us. Never demands too much of us. Ever. What do you think it means to have Jesus as Lord of your life anyway? Remember, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he actually does my will who obeys my word, who follows the scripture, who builds his or her life upon the rock and not upon the sand. And remember, building your life upon the rock means doing everything that Jesus says. As Lord Jesus is the master, right? That's what a Lord is. A Lord is a master. We are a slave. The slave must do whatever the master says. And if we profess Jesus to be Lord, then there is no demand too great for the master to make of his servant. It is the right, the prerogative of the master to make any demands. So Jesus says, you want to go with me? This is the way it's going to be, Mr. Scribe. You want to be my follower, but you want to put something first? You want to first do something ahead of me? Does the servant have a right to tell the master the terms? The servant has no right to tell the master terms on anything. Well, I'll I'll come first. No, there's no first. The first is you do what I tell you. Now, if you want to be my disciple, you come. You know, I'll never forget the first time I was challenged with the passage that I'm about to read. Turn with me to, to Luke 14. And look at verses 25 and following. 
Now, again, it says great multitudes were going along with him. Here we have those great multitudes following Jesus. But it says, he turned and said to them. Now, what, he's, what he is doing, he says, you're following me, but let me tell you the terms of following me. You want to be my disciple? Here's what it's going to demand. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty tough. Now, by the way there, it's evident what he means by, by hate. It means... It's a comparative term of loving. Who do you love more? Me or your father or your mother or your brothers or sisters? Who do you love more? If you love family more than me, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. You can't be my disciple. I'm going to come back to Luke 14, but I want us to quickly go over to, to Luke 8. Look at Luke 8, verses 19 to 21. It says... Jesus was ministering, and it says in verse 19 of Luke 8, And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Stuck right there. Now Jesus says, Now look, look here, crowd. My mama and my brothers and sisters are here to see me, so just give way. And let them come through. They haven't seen me for a while. They want to see me. So make a path for them sin. Is that what Jesus said? Here's what Jesus said. And he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Now did Jesus, was he insulting his mother and his family? No. He's just putting in terms of the priority in life, what is the most important? Ministering the Word of God. And who, who are my mothers and brothers anyway? Those who are listening to me and following, hearing it and doing it, those are my mothers and my fathers and my brothers and my sisters. My ministry. That's who it is. Family doesn't come first. No. Jesus says, I have to come first. I have to come first. You want to be my disciple? You've got to make a decision. Is it going to be your family or is it going to be me? Like I said, the first time that I really uh, dealt with this, I went to school. East Tennessee State University was about 25 miles from my hometown, Kingsport. Now, I wasn't mama's boy as such, but I did like being around my parents, even as a, as a freshman in college. So. And every weekend, I would leave the campus and go home, either take a bus or my sister-in-law was staying with them because my brother was in Vietnam. She came and picked me up every weekend. We had Bible studies. And Tom, who was the head of our campus ministry, 
He was saying, the Bible study. He says, Don, let's have the Bible study. Let's just go over to your parents' house in Kingsport. Spend some time with your parents. I liked my parents. So we were going to have the Bible study at my parents' house on this occasion. And you know what the, what the text was? Luke 14, 25-35 was the text. Now, Tom had said, John, you know, he said before in a loving way, do you have to go home every weekend? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things going on, on campus, you know, helping the students out. Do you have to go home every weekend? Well, we were dealing with this. You want to know a passage that came down in a thundering way to somebody? This passage came down in a thundering way. I'm sitting in, in my basement of my parents' house with my parents present. And we're going over this, and they have no idea what's going on in my mind as the Lord Jesus was administering a disciple test to John. That's right. I like to go home every weekend. But after that Bible study, I made a determination. I said, you know... Maybe I ought to give up my family if that's what it takes to minister to college students. I, I decided after that I was not going to go home every weekend. I maybe went home once every six weeks after that, even though I was 25 miles away. I made a conscious choice because the Lord brought that to my thing because, you see... It wasn't so much, I, I, I like doing that, and the Lord gave me a discipleship test. Do you like it enough more than ministering on the campus? So choose John, which is going to be, well, praise God, I made the right choice. He's going to give us these tests along the way. He's going to give us these tests. Now, this Luke 14 passage, and when he says here, Jesus says, and unless a person carries his own cross, look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What was the cross a symbol of? Suffering. That's what a cross was. A symbol of suffering. And they knew it. They saw the Roman executions of the cross. They've seen people executed. It was a symbol of suffering. And Jesus says, who doesn't carry his own cross... Cannot be my disciple. You want to you have me as Lord? You want to follow me? Well, here's the way it's going to be. You willing to suffer carrying your own cross? If that's what it takes. You willing to go wherever I want to go? You willing to put me first above your parents and your brothers and your sisters? Is that what you're willing to do? Because if you're not willing to do it, don't call me Lord. Don't call me Lord if that's not what you're willing to do. See, following Jesus means we can't give any excuses of what we're going to do first. So the man says, let me bury my father first. No, no, no. No, 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 no. I'm first. Not your father. You want to follow me or not? He chose not to follow Jesus. A bad choice. We don't ever know whatever happened afterwards. We just don't know. You know, look, the Lord has historically put the visible church to a test many, many times. Are you willing to suffer for me? Are you willing to die for me? Well, we're going to find out. We'll find out. 
You know, the Covenanters in Scotland were some of those who refused. Most of them, the Covenanters, were Presbyterians. And uh, the church, the Roman church in England, <clears throat> they were going to force their view of Catholicism upon the Presbyterians. <clears throat> or, the, say, the Church of England was. Not the Catholic Church, but the Church of England. And you had, the, the, you had these Scot, godly Scots that said, uh, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And they said, oh, yes, you will. They said, no, we're not. They sent soldiers says, yes, you will. And one of the great testimonies is a 16-year-old girl. They took her and an elderly lady, and they put her... They, they, they buried them both in the sand. They buried the older woman further out, and then they buried the 16-year-old the with just their heads above the sand. They, bur they, they buried the elderly lady further out, so as the tide came in, if she refused to renounce their faith, the 16-year-old got to see the elderly woman die first. So they were all, it was all a plan to get the 16-year-old See if she would renounce it. She would not renounce the faith. She would not cater. She kept saying, I will not bow to what they tell me. And the 16-year-old girl drowned. You willing to follow me, whatever it takes? You willing, to, you willing to die for me? That's what it's going to take. That may be what he demands of us. See, I'm telling you, the Lord is drawing a line in the sand in the visible church. Our American culture is spiraling downward at an accelerating rate. And we, the historic Christian faith, is becoming more and more abandoned. And the visible churches, various visible churches, are already caving in to the pressure and the Lord will separate the wheat from the chaff. To what extent? Willing to lose your job? Willing to lose your church status? Uh, exempt status? Church? I'm going to find out. I will find out. If you are just playing games with calling me Lord, or you're going to actually live under my Lordship. To what extent are you willing to suffer? Very quickly, I'll deal with the, the turn back to Matthew 8, because the, the story of what happens on the Sea of Galilee is really tied in to this whole story of what is going on about discipleship. We're told that Jesus, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. He said to them, Why are you, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds of the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the winds of the sea obey him? 
Now, I preached on this before, that this sets forth for us uh, how faith conquers fear. And, by the way, this was no minor storm that came up the Sea of Galilee. You've got to understand something about the uh, uh, topography of the area. Sea of Galilee is surrounded by these mountains and these steep cliffs. And, and the elevation is quite high. So you have all this cold air coming down to a warm surface that can create these violent hurricane-like storms just out of sudden on the Sea of Galilee. You can be out there on a calm day, next thing you know, you're in the midst of a serious storm. And that's exactly what happened. It was so serious that the, the boat was being, uh, the water was coming over in the boat. And guess where? Jesus is in the back of the boat on a cushion sleep. It's been a hard day ministering all these people. He's sound asleep. It's hard to imagine being sound asleep when you've got a hurricane force, because that's what it's like. There's a particular name that I forgot, the name of those storms that arise on the Sea of Galilee. So it is a tremendous storm. The boat is already filling up. <laughs> They all come back to the stern. I've always thought that was amusing. They all go back to the back of the boat, all 12 of them, to say, wake up, Jesus, wake up, as if it's not already bad enough. And he wakes up, and then he, he rebukes them. They say, why are you afraid? They could have easily said, well, Jesus, take a look. I mean, just take a look at the rest of the boat, at the water coming in. I don't you think we have a right to be afraid? Because it's going to be a few minutes and we're going to be all drowned. No, he rebukes them. He rebukes them. And then he says, he rebukes them for their lack of faith. And then he says to the winds, be calm. Now, we've got a hurricane-type force, because they say these storms are hurricane of magnitude on the Sea of Galilee. This storm, immediately the winds stop, all the waves using the storm. It takes a while for the waves to dissipate, to calm down. It says the winds stopped immediately, and the Sea of Galilee was instantly like smooth glass. And it says the disciples were in utter astonishment. He'd already performed all these miracles, but who is this? That at the command of his words, the storms can cease. You know, usually the people that are closest to celebrities, they're not as excited about them as the rest of the people are because they see the weaknesses of the uh, celebrity. That's a norm. But with, with the disciples, they were as they were closer with Jesus, they were astonished because he was greater than they even imagined. See, what Jesus did in the boat there was demonstrate, I am really the Lord of glory. I am the creator of the universe. And let me just show you. And he calms a storm. I am your master. I am your Lord. You willing to go with me wherever I go? You willing to put me first above your family? Above your friends? Are you really? I'm going to find out. How are you doing on the discipleship test? Pretty tough, isn't it? It's never, <clears throat> never a mistake. See, it doesn't take much to fail this test. It really doesn't take much to fail this discipleship test. Because all we have to say is, no, no, my friends are more important. No, having a good job and making a lot of money is more important. Then you really don't have me as Lord, do you? You really don't have me as Lord. 
Anything that you put ahead of Jesus is saying that Jesus, functionally speaking, is not your Lord. So, you make a conscious decision to follow Jesus no matter what today? I sure pray so. Let's pray.